Before our reading this morning, let us remind our hearts of the promise the Lord has made in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in them, for the time is near. Today's scripture reading is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Please take a moment to turn to the text in your Bibles to follow along. And the reading will also be on the screen behind me. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. <clears throat> well, all right, well, you're going to want to keep your uh, Bible open, or if you have one of those uh, study guides, you can keep that open as well as we wade through Revelation 2 this morning. If you're new, I want to especially welcome you. This is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach uh, typically about 95% of the time. We're preaching our way through a book of the Bible, and we are making our way through the whole book of Revelation. And uh, we find ourselves on the second letter in the section of the seven churches, the letter to the church at Smyrna. Um, this is interesting. And I hope you picked up the weight and the gravity of this particular letter from, from the reading of it alone by, by Vivian. Um, this is a church that, uh, unlike last week, does not have a correction. It's only one of two out of the seven letters that does not have, Jesus does not give a, a, a correction uh, to. This is a church that, um, from this letter, it appears that Jesus is, is very pleased with. However, on the outside uh, looking in, um, it's going through some serious suffering. And by all appearances, unlike the church in Ephesus, there's not much to uh, applaud. And I mean that in physical appearances, potentially somewhere like I mentioned, Ephesus or Laodicea, as we'll see in the upcoming weeks. Um, I like to give a little background on the cities of each of these seven churches historically, because I think it helps us understand what the people in the, 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 which this letter was written to actually were facing in that day. And so Smyrna um, was an important city uh, in, in this region, and really in the empire of Rome. It was a prosperous city, much like Ephesus from last week. It was 35 miles uh, away from Ephesus, that first letter. And really there was this competition between Ephesus and Smyrna of who could get Rome's attention the most, right? Who would be that crowning jewel city outside uh, of Rome that, 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 that when Rome and its emperors and it, the Caesar would, would think about the outside world, uh, it would think about Smyrna as, as the most elevated or Ephesus. And so there was this jockeying. Um, well, Ephesus was bigger in population, uh, Smyrna was, was more beautiful in appearance, like its physical structure. And, and so um, its geography was beautiful. And, and you can read history on, on Smyrna. And it was just this, this place where uh, many tourists, where many visitors would go because of just its, its, its physical uh, beauty. But uh, beyond its physical beauty, there was deep persecution for the Christians. 
uh, Christian, Christianity here, churches believe, were, were planted uh, in Acts chapter 19 via Paul's third missionary journey, very similar to, to Ephesus. Um, but Christians living in a city that wanted to make its allegiance to Rome known and a city that had a massive amount of Jews um, made for a very tense situations for those Christians who pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ alone as their king. That's a problem when you're trying to impress Rome as a city, right? So the Roman, the government officials there, uh, and in fact, the Jews would also persecute uh, the Christians because if they could persecute the Christians or they could, they could kind of deflect some of the attention off of them, See, they, they were also monotheistic, meaning they, they worshiped one God, Yahweh, okay, but obviously didn't recognize Jesus. They would deflect that attention to who? The Christians. And so it created this very tense scene, and, and so much so that you saw here uh, that the uh, Jews who worshiped, uh, obviously, um, in synagogues, it wasn't called the synagogues of God, it was called the synagogues in Revelation 2, the synagogues of what? Satan, right? So like, hold on, and I'll unpack that in just a little bit. But that gives us the uh, amount of pressure that Christians faced in Smyrna, and so much so that, that Jesus wants to meet them there as a suffering church and talk to them about how to suffer well. And that is what I want to unpack uh, this morning, this topic of suffering well, and uh, there are many ways you can go about this, and suffering is one of these massive topics biblically. And I, I want to stay in the lanes of Revelation chapter 2, okay, in these verses, a very short letter to this church in Smyrna, but I find a deeply encouraging. Um, and I want to explain a little bit my approach by using um, uh, an old vehicle that I bought. So a couple of years ago, I bought a project car, a 1988 Range Rover, okay? Um, it's just a project. Uh, and now some of you are like, wow, I didn't know, Kyle, you were a car guy. I'm not, and that's what's funny. Um, so I bought this just to, like, learn. Um, uh, vehicles, learn how to fix things, put my hands to something, uh, work a lot with my mind. So I wanted to find something that I could do with my hands, and this has been a labor of love, and I use that very, uh, you know, um, just like, it's been frustrating, guys. I'm just going to be honest. It's been really frustrating. I bought a British-made vehicle that has a lot of problems, okay? Um, and outside the basic automotive repair, I don't know anything about a car. Uh, but something I did learn quickly is this, is that as I began to work on different aspects of this vehicle, my tendency when approaching something in the vehicle that needs to be fixed was just to exert my brute force strength upon it, Right? If I can't get it to budge, what do I do? I just hit it as hard as I can, right? If I can't get the, you know, the lug nut to, to come, I just use my force. But here's the problem. Sometimes that works. But in other times when I exert that same force, if I exert that same, maybe I use a, 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 an improper tool upon it, what happens? It ap absolutely disintegrates something that is one old, fragile or something that was not built for my force to be exerted upon it in that kind of way that was meant for me to handle more gently. And in this, and in this text, I believe that Jesus is handling suffering among a church that is suffering deeply with such gentle care. There are other times where you feel this force, you feel this thrust upon it, but in this text, I feel a force and a thrust, but it's almost via Jesus' gentle care. And so I, I, I want to look at, and this is what struck me in this text this week, is how Jesus approached suffering with this particular group of people. 
The things that you, I just explained that they were facing in Smyrna via political pressure and economic pressure and religious pressure, all those pressures. How does Jesus talk to them about suffering? Well, the first thing we notice is not necessarily how he talks to them, but it's about himself. Look at it in verse 8. He talks about himself on display. He talks about Jesus. And remember from last week talking about Jesus, he is the foundation of the church. It's best to start with him, right? And so the two things he puts on display in verse 8 are this. that it, What does it say? The words, this is from the first and the last, in he who died and came to life. This is the one who is speaking to you, Smyrna. This is the one who's speaking to you, those who are suffering, those who are hurting, those who are in pain, right? The one who is over all time, so these are the two things that are on display. Jesus' authority over time and his authority over life and death. That is right out of the gate what Jesus wants them to know. I'm the God who sits above time, the first and the last. That's, we looked at this um, a couple weeks ago. And then this is coming back where he goes, I am the one who came back to life. So I have the power over life and death itself. So this, this foundation, hear me, frames his conversation on suffering. It's like he wants to get them on solid confidence, on solid foundation, before he says to them what he needs to say to them about suffering. Okay? And so the first thing, again, Jesus' authority over time and Jesus' authority over life and death. And then he begins, verse 9, I know. Now, I'm going to go a lot quicker than this, I promise. Those two words, out of Jesus' mouth, I know. Like how comforting, I'm I'm serious, how comforting is this? And I'm not trying to be elementary here. I'm not trying to be overly basic, but I think we skip over these words of Jesus going, I know where you're at. I see you. Your suffering has not escaped me. Have you ever been in those moments in your individual life where you're like, God, where are you? I know King David from the Psalms, as I read them, he had a similar question. And Jesus, out of his mouth, after establishing his authority, after establishing who he is, he says this, I know. I know where you're at. It hasn't escaped me. I know what you're walking through. And he then elaborates what he knows about them. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And I know the slander that is happening to you on the account of me. Now, let's, let's, let's think about those things, your tribulation. What he's talking about there is pretty obvious with this church in Smyrna. They're facing pressure. They're facing pain. They're facing suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their testimony of Jesus. Remember, what I keep using the two words, prophetic witness, the word of God that they're standing on, and the testimony of Jesus. They're facing these, these sufferings, and this suffering is getting very specific now when he uses the word poverty. Their poverty, as it relates in Smyrna, is probably attached, Jesus is probably actually talking about their economic standing. You see, in Smyrna, the whole banking system was wrapped up in in, in pagan, idolatrous worship. In fact, even to access funds in the way that they would have, they would have had to enter sometimes into pagan temples that Christians would have never went into. And so Jesus is going, listen, I know, I know about your poverty. I know the things you have given up for my name's sake. But what does he remind them there? He goes, but but you're rich. You're not 
poor. You, oh, you're poor by worldly standards, but you are rich by kingdom standards. Now, here's where we need to pause and remember that as Christians, we are part of what? A different kingdom. A kingdom that is upside down. So listen, Jesus is trying to get them to not fix their eyes on the wealth outside of the window and go look around this circle, Smyrna, look at the church. You may be poor as you look out the window, right? As you look at one another in physical eyes. But remember, this is apocalyptic literature. Jesus is trying to pull back the veil. And he goes, I want to pull back the veil on the economy of God. You are not poor, you are rich. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are broken, for they will be put back together. They will be made whole, right? And so he's trying to get them to have different eyes, to have kingdom eyes that see that they are actually strong and wealthy. Remember, on the surface, this, this church appears weak and frail. And Jesus comes here and he goes, I know you. I see you. I see your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you're rich. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't be deceived by the external appearances. You're part of an upside-down kingdom. And then he goes, I know the slander that happens. I, I, I know these Jews who are persecuting you as followers of Jesus. Right? These synagogues. And the reason he, he, he brings up the, the synagogues of Satan is because Jews and Christians would worship, Christians would utilize synagogues to worship. And so their persecution or their slander was now happening within these synagogues. And, 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 and it was confusing, I'm sure, to the church at Smyrna to go, wait a minute, um, you, you worship Yahweh, right? But yet you're persecuting and slandering us in this deep division. And, and, and Jesus wants them to know, listen, they are not worshiping God with their whole hearts. And in fact, those synagogues that you think are synagogues to God are not synagogues to God. They're synagogues to Satan, and they're actually being used for his plans, and so to this, they're, they're getting clarity in their suffering. And I just notice in, in this moment and the way Jesus talks to the suffering church about their suffering, that Jesus just speaks really honestly to them. He goes, I know where you're at. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your, your, your slander. I mean, just, just imagine being this church for a little bit. You look outside, everything is beautiful. Everything's packaged because they want Rome to applaud them. There's these beautiful synagogues that are full of Jewish worshipers that you no longer can go in, that you're being persecuted by. There's this beautiful mountain that I'm going to talk about with these, these, these structures, these uh, temples to other deities. All of this surrounds you, yet when you look around this circle, when you gather as a community of Christians, maybe you notice the empty chair over here that used to be filled by somebody that was martyred. Maybe you notice a row here of people who were worshiping and they're in prison. And just imagine you're gathered there and a letter rolls in, this letter from John, and it starts and it's being read, and it's not from John. It's actually written by John, but from Jesus himself. It says, I know you. I know what you're walking through. Now, um, at this point, right? Imagine we hadn't heard the text read by Vivian. Maybe we would expect Jesus to go, and here's what's going to happen. Those synagogues of Satan, I'm going to light them up and burn them down, right? 
My, your tribulation's going to turn around. Your, your poverty's going to prosperity. Wait, wait a minute. Like, that's maybe what we'd expect. What happens, Jesus continues to be honest. In verse 10, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So get this. To the suffering church in Smyrna, Jesus goes, you're going to suffer in this life a little bit more. You're going to face this. And he in fact gets specific with them, doesn't he? He says, you're going to go to prison, some of you. And he says, some of you will have 10 days worth of tribulation, and I think that's attached to prison. Like their, their time in prison will be 10 days. And uh, a lot of commentators uh, speculate, what does that mean? Is Jesus literally saying they're going to be in prison for 10 days? Um, I don't think that's what, Je what Jesus is, is saying in this letter, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit. But honestly, 10 days um, in prison was when, you, uh, when, when a person was charged with insurrection. They would place them in prison for 10 days, essentially to build the case against them. Now, remember, they're in a society where it's not innocent until proven guilty, okay? Like, no habeas corpus here, okay? Like, they just want to throw you in prison. You can be in prison for as long a time. But for insurrection, there was a 10-day uh, holding period. It could be that this idea of 10, as we'll see in Revelation, is just a whole number that they're, going, they're saying, you're going to be in prison for a, a while. Um. What I've noticed in times of suffering, or even when we're able to almost like anticipate suffering, if we're able to do that, um, what do our prayers often sound like? Think about that in your life. When, when, when you walk through suffering, um, I know in my life, my prayers have sounded like, uh, God, release me from this. Um, heal me. Maybe the church in Smyrna, they hear this from Jesus, and they're like, okay, are we supposed to pray to the one who just said this? Like, don't do that. <laughs> like, Lord, we know you're faithful to your word, but don't. Be faithful to that word. Um, and again, hear me. Um, I, I believe those prayers are honest. I'm not telling you to not pray those, those, those prayers um, in honesty. Those are not wrong prayers. Um, oftentimes it come from a deep place of desperation. Some, some of you praying those right, right now. Um, but when hearing from Jesus on suffering, I hope what you see in this moment is his encouragement does not come from release or removal of suffering. His encouragement comes from presence. It comes from his presence. You say, how, how do you get that from this text? And here's where I want to talk about the 10 days a little bit deeper. I believe that 10 days there is a callback to an Old Testament text. It's a callback to Daniel chapter 1. And many of you know the story of Daniel where he and his friends are held captive, right, in exile Babylon. And he's placed in prison. And in Daniel chapter 1, you don't have to pull that up even though I have the text. Um, in Daniel chapter 1, this is where many people get the Daniel fast, right? Uh, Daniel requests that he not be given the king's food and only eat, right, uh, fruits and vegetables, right? Like that, that, that moment for 10 days. And the jailer's like, uh, no. You're not going to do that because it's on my watch that I keep you healthy and alive, okay? So, like, no, you're not going to do that. And he goes, hey, give us 10 days to seek our God and do this and, 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 and see if we're not healthier. And, and what happened? 
God showed up right in the middle of, of, of Daniel's suffering, in the middle of this pain, in the middle of this dark moment. There was this, these 10 days of suffering and tribulation where God showed up powerfully and faithfully. It's like he's throwing back, Jesus is throwing back, remember Daniel, remember those moments, remember those 10 days particularly of tribulation. You're going to walk through suffering, you're going to walk through pain, but remember, I have been faithful and I will be faithful no matter what, in prison or out free, I will be present with you. Don't forget. I love what Tim Keller says about suffering. He says, some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life. I don't think that's what's taking place in Smyrna. This would be in the case of Jonah in the storm. Some suffering, he says, is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph sold into slavery. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Now think about this. Let's keep going in our text. Verse 10. He says that you will... After he says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. That little phrase right there, if we're not careful, we can just skip over it. What is the point, what is the purpose of the suffering in Smyrna? Well, we know it's God's glory, right, that God might be glorified, but he says it's for your testing. Well, what is the word of God, think particularly in the New Testament, what does the word of God say about God testing us as believers? Does it say it never happens? No, right? Does he say that God never gives us trials? No, in fact, he speaks very specifically about trials and about tests, and this is what he says. Look at the, the first one. For you know that t- the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is, this is James, and we can go further places in James, but just that simple one says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Next verse. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So get this, the testing of our faith through suffering is meant to produce something in us that apart from trials and testing cannot be produced. So in the scriptures, it's different things, right? It produces steadfastness, righteousness. It produces a depth and a walk with God and an understanding of who God is that can only be produced in moments like this. And Smyrna is walking through that. Let me say this. Testing is producing something deep in this church. Not something superficial, not something phony or flimsy, but something deep, a rootedness. And the encouragement comes also in verse 10 and in what Jesus gives them instruction to do. And again, I'm not trying to be elementary or just, hey, uh, use Christianese here, but this is what Jesus encourages his church with two things. He says, do not fear. He understands the honesty and the truth by which he just leveled to them. And he understands their human heart and their human nature like he understands you and me. And he says to them, don't fear. I said this two weeks ago, and I think it's worth reminding that being a Christian is about having the correct fear and not being afraid. Like that's what it means to be developing and maturing as a believer, to have the proper fear of who God is and not being afraid of the things that come in this life. And then he says the second encouragement is this, be faithful unto death. Don't fear. Be faithful 
um, three tactics of Satan that are leveled in nearly every single letter of the seven letters. There's only three tactics of the enemy. And there's one in each, okay? Or some of, of two in each. The first is that Satan tries to deceive us. Deceive us with lies, heresy, the appeal of the world. If deception doesn't work, the enemy will try to seduce us. Seduce us into... Um, believing um, certain things are, are more promising than the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And if deception and seduction don't work, third, he deploys persecution. Persecution. And in this church, we find persecution coming. So potentially what we found in Smyrna is a very faithful congregation who has not been seduced, who has not been deceived. Now the enemy will unload his persecution upon them, hoping that that will crack them. And Jesus shows up and goes, no, listen, do not fear. I hold the keys to death and life, okay? I'm the one who is the beginning and the end. Suffer well and be faithful even unto death. How do we not fear? How do we patiently endure in this life? Right, it's one thing to say, Kyle, yeah, okay, don't fear, be faithful. What does it mean? How, how does this play itself out? What do we need? And here's what I wanna level with you, two things this morning, and they're both found in this scripture. And if it's, the first is this, what are we reading? We're reading a letter to the church, right? It's not just a letter like, you know, you and your pen pals have. There are no pen pals anymore, by the way, okay? Um, this is God's word. If we are going to patiently endure through suffering, we need the same thing that the church in Smyrna needs. We need the word of God. We need to receive the word of God. They're receiving the word of God in this encouragement, in this honesty, and the second thing is, remember how they receive it. They didn't receive it in isolation at each one of their homes, did they? They received it as a community of faith. So hear me, we need two things. We need Jesus and his word, and we need Jesus and his church. If we are going to patiently endure through suffering. If we're really going to stand and not be afraid and not fall into deception or seduction or break under persecution. And I challenge you, think about it in your own life individually as you've walked through suffering. How many of you, in those moments, the places that you turn away from are the word of God and the people of God? Some of you, that's not true, but others of you know what I'm talking about. Is that when you walk through suffering, some of you begin to question God. You begin to question God's word. You, you wonder God's goodness or whatever it is. Some of you find yourself in suffering, not, not leaning into the family of God, not leaning into the people of God, but leaning away. Going, you know what? I, I, I just need to be by myself. I just need to figure this out. And so let me tell you, when we suffer, when we walk through suffering, we have to do things that are counterintuitive to our flesh. We have to lean into the promises of God. We have to lean into the fact that he says, listen, in this life you will suffer. In this life you will have tests. You will have trials. But hold fast. I am faithful. I am with you. So we lean into that and then we lean into each other. We lean into the community of faith. And then Jesus says, here's the reward. He holds out this reward for them. Not as like, well, if you just make it, here's what I've got for you. But he holds it out as hope. He says on 
for the church that faithfully endures. Be faithful, this is the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Um, Smyrna was enamored, the city as a whole, with the crown of Rome. It's prestige. It's being known. It being beautiful. So much so, as I alluded, they, on top of one of their mountains or their high places, they built these structures of these temples to all these different deities. So much so that it looked like a crown. And below it, there was a road. And history tells us that below that mountain where all those things were set up like a crown, it was a street of gold. And history says that it was a necklace around the crown of Smyrna. So just imagine these Christians, they were surrounded with the crown of Rome, the power of Rome, the crown of these deities, these other structures. And Jesus comes in and goes, listen, in your suffering, in your pain, be faithful even unto death. And here's what I'm going to give you. The crown of Rome is going to fade away. That crown, that mountain of those deities, it will go away. But there's a crown that will last forever. And it's the one Jesus says that I'm going to place on your head. The crown of life. And Jesus goes, and I'm the only one that can place that crown. I'm the only one that can give you life. And so listen, what is Jesus' word to those who are facing suffering, who are walking through suffering? It's this, that you in this life, all of you, will taste death in one way or the other. But I love as one scholar puts it, he says, the time of trial on this life will be short, and the duration of your joy will be forever. He fixes their eyes on the hope of eternity. It's very reminiscent of Paul in Romans chapter 8, where he talks about considering the sufferings of this present age. And he's like, when I think about them in light of the hope and the weight and, and the future of all eternity, they grow really dim. And so if I can, if I can, if I could put this message um, to Smyrna in a nutshell, it would be this. The point of it all is a call to persevere through suffering. An invitation by Jesus to join him in his presence and in his suffering. How did Jesus gain the right, if you will, to place the crown of life on their heads? It was through taking not the crown of glory. It was by taking the crown of shame, your shame, my shame, my sin. That crown that was represented in his literal death by a crown of what? Thorns placed upon him. At this point is that our suffering is a cup as believers poured by God's own hand for reasons that we might not be able to understand in this life that our suffering is never without purpose and it is always producing and will produce something that will last forever. That we might be a community as he is lifting the eyes of these people in Smyrna, that we would join with them and have our eyes lifted beyond the sufferings of this life to a God who is in control and a God who makes a promise to us that says for those who will conquer, this is the last verse, for those who conquer, you will not be hurt by the next death. This death may swallow you up in will, but the next death will not 
touch you. That we might see our suffering not as a curse, but as a gift. Listen, there is, that is only possible with the Holy Spirit being alive in us. That we might see our suffering freeing us from something that we never thought we could overcome. Suffering, you know, has a way of doing that in our lives. And so let me speak to, to two things right now um, to end. To those of you who are suffering particularly and specifically. You're walking through some, something when I say suffering, when I say tribulation or trial, you are like this, I'm there. I hope you hear the heart of Christ this morning and the words of Christ this morning. I hope you hear him say to you as his child, as his son or daughter, do not fear. Don't be afraid, have faith. I am with you, I am producing, I am doing something that your literal and physical eyes may not be able to see. Your literal physical heart cannot feel. I pray that you would feel it spiritually this morning. That you, by faith, might receive the word of God in the middle of your suffering and what wells up is something so foreign. What wells up in you is not bitterness, is not cynicism, is not sadness. What actually wells up within you is worship that you would lean into. If this is your church, you would lean into her and not away from her. And then the second, and I know this might feel like a hard pivot, but what has captured me this week about this text as well is that this was written to a community of faith, a faith family. And so while we often try to find personal connections um, to the word of God, um, it's not always the most appropriate thing to do because of the communal nature of a letter like this. Now, there were six other churches that these letters were written to. These six other churches also received this letter to Smyrna. We're not told how the six other churches responded when reading the letter. I, I don't think they were like, we're only going to read our letter and not theirs, right? I think they read this letter to the church at Smyrna in Philadelphia and Laodicea in Ephesus in Pergamum. And I have to believe, again, pure speculation, but for those whose hearts were sensitive to Jesus, who had ears to hear the word of Christ, that they read this letter about a suffering body of faith just down the road. I have to believe that it drove them to their knees to plead to the Lord for that church, right? That they didn't read it selfishly and go like, at least we're not dealing with what they're dealing with. At least we're not suffering. I know we got another correction, but at least we're not. No, I bet it drove them to their knees to go, Lord, may your presence richly dwell there powerfully. They're going to prison. They're being persecuted. There are martyrs in that city for your namesake. And here's what struck me this week. For us as a community, I don't think that the Lord could write a letter and say, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know your slander for us here. But there are brothers and sisters around the world who this day, this Lord's day, are worshiping in fear of their lives. I was, I was doing some research this week. There are many places you can go, but places like Open Doors, there's World Watch List that talks about the persecuted places of Christians around the world. And to see that was staggering to me. 
These places where every day the profession and testimony of Christ puts a target on their back. That in 2023, persecution to churches worldwide, churches, schools, Christian schools, Christian hospitals, other Christian gatherings around the world was up six times from 2022. We're talking about like the total destruction of those places. So let, let me tell you, when, when churches around the world, when our brothers and sisters in Iran or these other places in North Korea read the letter to the church in Smyrna, they're going, I feel you. And listen, where we sit today, we sit in the center of our city, right? And we can gather by the hundreds and by the thousands and freely worship Jesus. And listen, we should, right? Because there may be a day coming where we can't any longer. But here, if that day comes, here's what I hope. Our brothers and sisters around the world are praying for us as well. But in those days, in these days where we sit here, what should we be doing for those who are persecuted and suffering? Our brothers and sisters around the world, we should be praying for them. And church, I've got to admit to you, we need to repent for us not praying for them more than we do. And, 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 and so this letter just woke me up to the global reality of our church. And, 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 and somehow also, when I began to lift my eyes off of myself, I began to see the globalness the beauty, I began to look at others in their place. The Lord began to heal and give me proper perspective of what I was walking through as well. And so we're going to take communion. I know I've went a few minutes over. Thanks for that. Um, and I want us to do two things. One, if you are walking through particular suffering this morning, and I know many of you are, I want you as honest as you can to come before the Lord. And listen, that might mean going, God, I'm really mad. Like, don't, don't try to like uh, sugarcoat your prayer and honesty before the Lord because he, he, he knows where your heart and your mind are, okay? It's okay to bring your frustration before the Lord because as you begin to do that, as you begin to voice, Lord, this is where I truly am, he's going to meet you in that place. He's going to meet us into this place. For those of you who would say, hey, Kyle, like I, I'm, I'm not in that space, praise God, right? Let's pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for their faith every single day, whose literal lives are on uh, just, just at risk, that they didn't get to gather like we did. They gathered in hushed tones in secret places so that Jesus might be glorified, okay? So we're gonna pray for them. And I think it's so fitting as we take communion because communion doesn't just unite our hearts to remember individually. It unites us corporately here with this faith family and also with our brothers and sisters around the world. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for your honest and true, your specific reminder of how we suffer well this morning. Thank you for the reminder that you are present and you are with us. And Lord, that one day all of this suffering will give way to an eternity and a life forever with you. And so I pray that we would anchor our hope in the right things. We would not anchor our hope in solutions or outcomes that we, God, prefer, but we would anchor our lives in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we as a community, we, we pray a risky prayer. Do in us what you need to do to create deep people who love you, Jesus. So come what may, come what may. Father, I pray that you would form deeply in those who are walking through particular suffering right now 
a love and affection and a worship for you. God, though their eyes and their hearts and their minds might tell them one thing, I pray that by faith they would believe your word. They would believe the promises of your scriptures. They would feel, they would know that you're present. Lord, and they would lean into the things you called us to lean into, into your word and into one another, your community. And so, Lord, I pray that they would do that by faith. Lord, I do pray, and I pray that we would, as we receive communion this morning, we would pray for the church around the world who is being persecuted this day for the name of your son, Jesus. Lord, that you would heal them, that you would, you, 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 you would be present, Lord, as you were with these seven churches, that, would, that you would be present like you were in Smyrna, Lord God. You would be so real and vivid to them. And God, that we might even learn something from them here. God, forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for our self-centeredness, Lord. And I pray that you'd meet us as we lift our eyes off of ourselves and onto you and the global nature of what you're doing. Lord, you would, you would be faithful to accomplish what only you can. And so, Lord, um, may your spirit lead us as we receive communion this morning to the places you want us to go via your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Host, you can lead us.